Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. registration for your mark in every country that you do business or is it more strategic? It is more strategic and we're taking the same approach that we have with patents. Okay. Because you can, uh, you know, you can structure your strategy in a way that gives you this same or similar, similar level of protection within your risk tolerance. Um, by filing in fewer places. Right. And so we're actively looking at that uh, as well. There may be some, and, and again, this is a, an evolving process. Uh, there may be some uh, trademarks, for instance, that have just been around for a really long time. Um, and so we have to question, well, if we're not yes. selling that product or much of that product, do we really need to um, to pay renew. for trademarks yeah. and renew in that country? change how we thought about the whole process. So historically, this company would try to patent a lot of almost everything. And uh, a lot of the innovation was inside out instead of outside in, meaning scientists would be working on things that they thought were clever and they would patent them. So when we got here, what we decided to do is use a different concept. It was a uh, concept that I had used for the last 20 years that a consultant uh, teaches. It's called new, new Product Blueprinting. Okay. The quickest way for a campaign to get in trouble is to screw up their finance reports. When you declare for uh, your candidacy for public office from the local level to President of the United States, you immediately activate campaign finance laws. And in order to comply with those campaign finance laws, you've got to keep track of who your donors are, their name, their, their location, and their employer, and you have to keep the exact amount that they've given you. If you have the budget to get your message out, you got to do a campaign budget, make sure you, you, you put together, you start looking at how am I going to get my message out. In some markets, you're going to do television. Okay. Uh, television's effective. Uh, in more rural markets or more conservative markets, radio is still effective. Wow. Uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in younger markets, in more, more urban settings, uh, a Hulu ad is going to be more effective than a TV ad or a radio ad. Um, digital ads. People are getting their news now more than ever from social media. Right. So what? where are you going to put your ads now? I think your budget needs to be as as important as mail it, it is now digital, I think. I think digital has to be a strong part of your campaign. I'm wrong, but pretty much every athlete is their own small business owner. They basically are 1099-ing their services out to whatever team they happen to be playing for. So we take, so that was like, are they 1099s to the teams? Uh, no, but, oh, okay. but that's your, your base. The way I look at it is you're almost subcontract. But they're employee. Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious. So I didn't actually know that. So if you go from whatever team to the other team, you're now working for this, for this. Team, right. Right. So, but it's the end of the day, it's your brand. So we try now and we just have happened to have more professional athletes come under our umbrella. But we say, look, you know, we want to train from the beginning and educate and, 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 almost perspective shift a little bit into 
let's start thinking of this as if you're a business owner now. So that when it's time to leave, either through injury or you know normal retirement, right, you're already set up to uh, go on to whatever the next Means, chapter. Like we were talking about earlier about having all of your rights lined up correctly, or become ultimately important because of, of, of that fiduciary relationship. For example, let's say, and it's not in your case, but I've heard of it happening before. Let's say that a um, someone becomes a co-writer on a project. Uh, someone is interested in, in putting money into the project. Money comes into the project that's from an investor status, meaning you know whatever this producer is doing, that's how the investor is going to get payback. And uh, the writers blow up, and and uh, the film is stopped. That's the worst thing that can right. happen to mm -hmm. a film, either yeah. at the production stage, or at the distribution stage, or not even able, being able to offer the film for distribution because some of the early paperwork wasn't taken care of, some of the technical aspects, the boring stuff, which is what lawyers are hired well, to inevitably do. the producer is going to stick in some acquired footage or some acquired music instead of original music or right. original footage. Yep. Um, and so there's a whole uh, there's a whole clearance process for that. But yes, clearances, and uh, you know. If, if, you're, if you have a movie and you want to distribute the movie in perpetuity and you enter into a distribution contract for the distribution of that movie in perpetuity, but your acquired footage rights or your acquired music rights only have a 10-year license, oh. then uh, that can mess things up. So you also have to have the rights tracking. What do you have to do to comply? I mean, do we need to hire a lawyer? Do we need you to do this for us? Um, what, what are the hard parts of CCPA that's different from kind of a normal website compliance regime? What would you say? I think the, the bottom line thing that people need to understand about CCPA is that it's a really radical shift in thinking about customers' data. It's a shift to thinking that the customer owns their data even after they've given it to your company. They still have gotcha. rights over that data. They have the right to request to see it. Um, they have a re right to request corrections, with exceptions, of course, but generally they have a right to see it and even re right to request to delete it. Um, and that's a pretty big shift in the What's law. What's the most important thing for a sports team that wants to bring an athlete to the United States to think about? I mean, whether it's culturally or from a legal perspective, or how, how do we do that? How do we do that successfully? Well, legally, it's, it's going to be a little more formal, but just getting the paperwork together. It always comes down to the paperwork and making the case that this person has a reputation right. um, and that they're going to do something in the United States. It's not enough to just come to the United States uh, to be here in, the, in a presence. You have to come and do something, whether it's coaching, whether it's playing, whether it's um, uh, educating, teaching, whatever it is, you have to have a plan going forward. They're not going to just take you because you're you. You have to have, you have to contribute something to you. It essentially means that you are under the jurisdiction of the court. It means that when you pass away, your executor, who's the person who manages your affairs when you pass away, they have to go to the court, they have to qualify as executor, they pay some court fees, mm -hmm. they pay a probate tax, mm -hmm. and then they are under the uh, jurisdiction of someone called the Commissioner of Accounts okay. until that estate is wrapped up. So that is a, I've seen, I mean, I've seen probates that are 17 years old, but that's, that's a nightmare. Usually it's, you know, one to three years just on average. So instead of getting your heirs, getting the assets right away, mm -hmm. it takes one to three years, you're yeah. paying some taxes. Mm -hmm. So and you're paying fees as well. You're and paying fees the, to the commissioner a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand if they have a lot of assets. Just to look at your stuff. In the course of developing this, we, we went through a deep, deep dive. I think uh, 
two four inch binder notebooks of content, single spaced details in order to make certain that our pleadings weren't general in nature and that we weren't spending their money to go after a drive or to go after something that would be dismissed later on, but rather we were doing our due diligence to the bands as rule 11 would require in rule Somebody 10. watching this podcast, if they're a CEO of a, a cybersecurity company or the CEO of a company that hires a cybersecurity company, like a defense contractor or something like that, any big takeaways from a global perspective, from a NATO perspective uh, that, that you could share? Uh, more from the commercial side. I've dealt okay. in the worldwide distribution business for probably 20 years. Even as the J3 at Transcom, the majority of the lift that we got was from the commercial sector. And we in the military increasingly looked at the information management in the commercial realm on backbones that were very established and to try and expand that to the to the moving forward in those structures what that we had. What steps could a company take to get ahead of that? I mean, you're a commercial company. You have to worry about your data. You can't, we've obviously got ITAR and we've got export issues with data, but your data's all over the place when it's on the internet, right? Yeah. How, how does a company get ahead of something like that? From a practical standpoint, from a legal standpoint, how do those two things interplay? So, so practically and legally, Tom, right at the outset, we, all companies have to understand that they are part of a vast information network that's undergoing really a global revolution right now. And that global revolution is, is described really best in one phrase, is hyper-connectivity. Okay. So if you are a company even doing a small amount of business over the internet, you are connected to that system which is global in nature. And so as a consequence, if you understand as a company that your intersection with that network then exposes you to a whole realm of threats, the very threats that both Bob and General Fletcher outlined, that's the first step. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.